Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. This is going to be a special episode where we take y'all with us into the room of our South by Southwest panel. Well, not like literally in the room, but we're going to do a run through of our presentation so y'all have a good sense of what we're going to be describing in Austin, March 13th at the Austin Downtown Hilton. So we hope y'all get a lot of value from this conversation and know a little bit about what we'll be discussing on the South by Southwest stage. So this panel is titled Hunger Games, Who is Winning in Our Broken System? And we are going to be having a conversation today about food insecurity in Texas. So as y'all know, Texas is a microcosm of the political tensions across the U.S., from the fraught arguments at school board meetings to the question of gun safety and security in schools from the question of immigration to that of abortion. I mean, Texas really does have it all. And our politicians love to boast about our robust economic state, about how we have so much abundance here. As a matter of fact, right now, our legislature is in session for the 88th legislative session. And our comptroller, our tax guy, Glenn Hagar, has informed us that the state has a $32.7 billion budget surplus He has said this is a once in a lifetime opportunity for investment, but we can't wonder in a state with such robust economic health, why are so many Texans left out of the abundance and why are so many Texans still going hungry? So in this panel, we will explore a little bit of the history of hunger in Texas and why this is a persistent problem. We seek to really understand the invisible machinery that is perpetuating this system and bring some visibility to this really important issue. So with that, I would love to introduce our panelists, who I'm sure if y'all have been listening to this series might already be familiar with. But today we are going to be chatting with Celia Cole, who is the CEO of Feeding Texas, and she has been working to eliminate hunger for 25 years. We're going to also be speaking with Lawson Picasso, who has a lived experience with food insecurity and is now an advocate for social justice. All right, sorry, I forgot to change that. Um, For social justice and uh, equitable systems. And Nicole Abshire, who y'all know, is my fabulous co-host of Go Behind the Ballot. So we are going to start by looking at this image. This is a photo that was taken during the pandemic. This is a line of cars waiting for food from one of the food banks here in Texas. So Celia, I'd love to start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about what we're looking at here and what this photo tells us about the state of food insecurity in Texas? Sure. Well, you're seeing, you know, obviously lots of cars line up to receive food uh, because overnight, you know, COVID really pulled the rug out from under hundreds of thousands of Texans. And they went from having to have not just in a period of 24 hours. I think what's important to note about this photo is that it really um, reflects how food banks um, and charitable food assistance generally really had to pivot to respond to COVID. So typically, The way we distribute food is in communities through local partners, churches, and other places. Um, And it's not visible, really, I think, to to people. And I think what COVID did is it really brought hunger out into the public's eye. And I think when you talk about why we have this persistent problem of hunger in a state that's so, you know, um, abundant in agriculture and wealth and all of those things, a lot of the reason is just a lack of awareness. People just don't realize it's a big problem. And I think COVID really changed that. And this photo helped. Mm -hmm. And Nicole and Lawson, what are some things that come to mind for y'all when you see this photo? I mean, for me personally, it kind of echoing what we we just heard right now, it, it was the razor's edge that everybody is really living on and that this could be at a flip of a switch, understanding that this could happen to anybody. Um, 
the food banks definitely saw an increase of need during the pandemic. And, and I agree, I think that this, what this showed was that, you know, uh, food insecurity was definitely something that was that was living in the shadows of society. And what the pandemic did was it it put a spotlight on it and it absolutely it amplified the 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 awareness of it along with you know some of the other root causes to to um, food insecurity, which is uh, a work stability and housing and education and just awareness of just kind of where where everything's living. And so I, I think that you know, when you look at this picture, it really resonates to understanding that this could be any of our cars having to be in this line. Well, and the only thing that I'll add is that we were fortunate to have a great conversation with Dr. Lori Green from the University of Texas, who studies uh, food insecurity from a historical perspective. And one thing that I believe she would point out is that I don't know that she would use the word pattern, but for sure there is a persistent pattern of when we have major economic events, these issues rise to the surface. And so this is the latest iteration of what it looks like when a major world event like the pandemic brings attention to something that had seemed hidden before. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, Celia, I'd like to take a little bit of a step back. Can you tell us what food insecurity is and why this is the term or the phrase that we use now to talk about hunger? Sure. I mean, I think people are more familiar with the term hungry because everyone has an idea of what it means to be hungry and what it feels like to be hungry. But the term food insecurity was adopted back in the early 90s, um, and it's an official term that USDA uses to measure food insecurity annually. Um, and, and I think what it gets at is that hunger as we sort of think of it, really occurs on a, on a spectrum from a situation where at best you may just simply be worried about your ability to afford food. And at worst, you have children in a family actually going without food. So it really captures that, that full spectrum. I mean, and the official definition is just of food security is being able to consistently access affordable and nutritious food in a conventional way at all times. Mm -hmm. And Nicole, you were alluding to Dr. Lori Green, who we spoke to, who really helped us understand the different terms that have been used in history. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the other ways we've described hunger in the past? Yes. Well, during the 1930s, right during the Depression, hunger was the primary word used. Um, and that evolved in the 1960s when we have, you know, major civil rights movement and so we had civil rights activists like Fannie Lou Hamer, who was using the term starvation, which of course has a different implication, which is that it's something that's being done to people. And even within that time period, that got adjusted a little bit, um, sort of back to hunger. And then we also see within the 60s, the inclusion of malnutrition so there's a real recognition that we have to also think about the kinds of foods that people have access to and what that means in terms of their overall health, particularly with children and brain development. So malnutrition also um, came into people's awareness about what hunger can do to people. Um, and then as Celia already talked about, right, in the 1990s, when we started to evaluate welfare programs, we start to to see the rise of food insecurity as a more measurable way of looking at hunger. Yeah, and, and lastly, lastly, Lawson, I'd like to ask you, you know, we talk a lot about making sure that the folks on the receiving end of these services, we still maintain their dignity and think about that at the forefront. So what are your thoughts on the way we speak about those in need and maybe the way we can speak better so that we are being mindful of their dignity? I think it needs to be coming from a place of empathy and understanding that there are some cultural differences in how we address and, and uh, also ask for help. Um, I, I, you know, again, I'm only speaking from my own experience, right? And so my experience is, is somebody's from a Hispanic background. Uh, there's a lot of pride there and a lot of things about, you know, keeping, maintaining your dignity and, and asking for help is looked at as, as a, a point of weakness. And so it, it's, Sometimes it's about just being discreet in how things are being done. I, I think for me, the being in the safety of your vehicle uh, to be able to get your food is a way of being discreet and keeping the integrity of the person because it's opening up the hitch and putting it in. So you don't have to have any interaction with anybody if you don't want to. Um, and it's just, it's really just 
being as as empathetic as possible when we're talking about you know these folks are living in a very vulnerable state and and it is it's part of you know addressing the bigger social safety net that we we need to ensure is is being uh provided to folks and how can we do that while also being considered understanding that this is this is a, a big gap in their in their life that they're having to deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. All right, we're going to move on to another image. And Lawson, I'll, I'll come back to you. Can you tell us about what we're looking at here? This is Mama Smurf. She mm-hmm. is a bright blue 2008 Taj Neon. Um, I don't even think they make Dodge Neons anymore, honestly. Uh, she had 84, 85,000 miles when I uh, purchased her and she was uh, put like basically holding on by a hope and a prayer. <laughs> and that was my home for a, a good stint of, of my adult life, about six months of my life. And um, the the driver's side door you can see in this picture it has like where you put the key in uh yeah it didn't lock so that was fun but um it was it was home I learned that my back passenger seats actually folded down and I could like put a sleeping bag in there and sleep in there um and and this this was kind of the behind the curtain life that I was I was living while trying to get myself out of a a pretty pretty low spot in my life. Mm -hmm. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Celia, do you think this is typical of, of what Texans are experiencing when they're experiencing food insecurities, uh, situations like what Lawson experienced in the past? I don't think it's uncommon. I mean, I think as Lawson mentioned, like, you know, there are lots of differences and in, in, in every, everybody's experience is unique. So I wouldn't want to like say, yeah, everybody who's food insecure is living in their car. And I think one of the important things to acknowledge about food insecurity is that it's, it's that hunger is really, it's more of a money problem than a food problem. And so when someone's food insecure, it's because they're economically, financially insecure. And whether that means they don't have a home and they live in their car or they're struggling to pay rent or they're doubling up with other families, um, it, what it really comes down to is do people have the financial resources um, to pay for basic necessities? And in Lawson's case, there was a trade-off, right, Lawson? So, you know, you needed to pay for other things than than expensive rent or housing. And so your your trade-off for you was living in your car. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to move on to this image. Um, As Nicole and I have been working on this panel and educating ourselves on hunger, we have come across this awareness that uh, the American public seems to go through periods of discovery of discovering hunger when the public consciousness is very aware of this persistent problem, but it seems to ebb and flow. So Nicole, can you tell us a little bit about these images that we're looking at and how they helped bring more awareness to this problem? Yes. So the far left is the, you know, iconic photo called migrant mother taken by Dorothea Lange in 1936. She uh, was a documentary photographer who was employed as part of Roosevelt's New Deal, and she traveled and took pictures of folks in poverty. In this case, she was working for the Farm Security Administration and happened upon this mother and asked to take her photo. And, you know, it, it has become this iconic photograph to really... Uh, symbolize and show what was happening in the 1930s, especially for uh, migrant farm workers. And um, so this brought a lot of attention to hunger in the 1930s. And actually this photo led to this huge influx, 20,000 pounds of food that was sent to the camp where this woman, um, her photo was taken. So it's an example of how the media can really provide a spotlight that brings attention and actual resources to a problem. Um, If we move to the center photo, that's of Robert F. Kennedy when he was touring the Mississippi Delta in 1967. This was at a time when there were hearings in Congress and there was a case being made specifically by Marion Wright, who was a civil rights activist, who was telling, you know, congressmen and congressmen that um, there was a problem 
and that people were going hungry. And she was describing this and they were essentially in disbelief. They couldn't believe that what she was describing could actually exist. And so what happened is that senators went to the Mississippi Delta to see what was being described to them and found exactly what she described, which of course was, you know, deeply shocking and worse, I think, than many of them actually thought it would be. So that's that photo of Robert F. Kennedy. Um, on the right, we have a picture taken by Al Clayton, who was another famous documentary photographer of the 60s. And this, this has now been put together in a book called Still Hungry in America. But he also documented uh, what hunger looked like throughout the US. Um, and so these are examples in the 60s of when attention was brought to hunger and it created what it was supposed to create, which was a huge public outpouring of support for programs. Um, we also in the 60s, you know, have the rise of television. And at that point we had, you know, three networks. So when people watched something on TV, it was really the nation watching. And so I think this will come later in our program, but you know, television was also hugely effective in bringing attention to hunger. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, Celia, do you think that food insecurity is invisible to most of us? Um, I think that that if you are if you've never experienced it yourself, and um, people tend to live in communities and have friends where people are like them both in terms of their, their, well, in terms of their socioeconomic background, that um, it's not unlikely that you might never be around someone facing hunger or think you're around someone facing hunger. And therefore it's easier to, to either, you know, to ignore or to be truly ignorant um, of the problem. Um, you know, I'm reflecting on this photo and I'm thinking about, you know, all the, some really great things came out of you know, hunger being documented in this way, it was sort of, it was this work and these photographs that really led to the modern food stamp program, which is now called SNAP. Um, but I think one of the things that we've never really grappled with is sort of like, well, what are the root causes of hunger? And and really, it, you know, we've not tackled those. And so it's led to really effective programs at fighting hunger and keeping hunger at bay. Um, but I think it's why we see this, this continual resurgence of you know, during times of crisis and disaster of like a reminder, oh, there's still hunger in America. Why? When we have these great programs. And so I, that's what I think about when I, when I look at these pictures, it, it, it can be invisible. Um, but I think on some level, we all know it's there. And the question is, you know, what will it take to generate the, the, the public and political will um, to tackle some of those root causes? Mm hmm and Lawson, I'd love it if you could share a little bit about your experience when, when you were experiencing food insecurity and living in your car. Did you feel like people knew that you were in that precarious state? No. And that was kind of by, by design was I did not want anybody to know that I was living in my car and uh, I was living with like a buzzing sound of hunger in my head the entire time. Uh because I, I didn't, I didn't want anybody to worry, uh, especially like my mom or my family back home or my friends. Uh, it was, it was a matter of just, you know, trying to, trying to just blend in as much as possible. Uh, I, I was a waitress at Hooters and with uh, being a waitress at Hooters at the time, they offered a free gym membership, which meant that I had a shower and an outlet. And that meant that I could go in and just freshen up and just give myself and my vehicle a rest and uh, get my hair done and just, you know, look as if I was just living a normal life, right? Uh, and, and so for, for me, it, it definitely, I, I ensured that it was as invisible as possible. Working at a restaurant, you get a free meal a day. So that was one of those things. It's like, at least I knew I had one meal that I could, you know, I could count on, I could rely on. Um, San Antonio is a predominant uh, social service industry uh, community. And so, you know, we, we talk about the photos and we talk about how this definitely led to some, some action. 1969, uh, Richard Nixon actually put together the first White House Conference for Hunger, Health and Nutrition that did end up looking at the, the food stamps and looking at uh, uh, school lunch programs and things like that. And again, we see how 
uh, when we we stopped making uh there's a spotlight on it again with the pandemic, and we had the second uh, White House Conference on Hunger, Health, and Nutrition uh, over, I mean, almost 50-year period, right, uh, before, since we've had the last one. And we're looking to see how we can, again, address this urgent need to ensure that whether it's invisible or not invisible for folks, or we want to turn a blind eye to it, or we don't want to turn a blind eye to it, that we are looking at ways that we can put sustainable um, policies and, and funding towards ensuring that there's services and support provided to folks regardless of their circumstance. Thank you so much. So we're going to move on to a little bit of a uh, presentation cut, catches up with us um, to this idea of abundance and scarcity. Um, when I started the panel, I shared with y'all that uh, Texas has a basically a $33 billion budget surplus. Um, we're the world's ninth largest economy, and yet one in eight Texans is hungry. So there's a weird disconnect going on, and I'd love to share a clip with y'all to um, illustrate this uh, dichotomy, if my computer will cooperate. And this is a clip from The Hunger Games from the second film, Catching Fire, Try one of these. They are divine. No, I, I can't eat another thing. Here. What's this? It's for when you're full. It makes you sick. So you can go on eating. How else could you taste everything? <laughs> I think it's time for a dance. Katniss? People are starving in 12. Here they're just throwing it out to stuff more in. Okay, so in case y'all didn't catch it, the last line that PETA said was people are starving in 12. Here they're just throwing it up to stuff more in. So panelists, I'm just curious, what are your reactions to this clip? And does it tell us anything about our current state? I think it definitely tells the story of imbalance, right? We have and and societal uh, tiers, right? We have folks that are completely starving and would love to be at a table where they have a full plate, while others are just purging it and disregarding a lot of the things that they have on their plate. And and knowing that there's enough food at the table for everybody, but we're not actually giving it to folks equally for everybody else to have an opportunity to eat. And so, how do we shift that? You know, we're we're looking at. Uh, life imitating art at this point in a very real we're, we're in a real hunger game and what are what what are we doing to help folks like feeding texas to be the first line of defense and give an immediate need while also looking at how we can have a long-term solution and there needs to be a balance and it can't be uh you know giving up one for the other there should be they should be able to address these things in tandem um but it it's definitely a survival of uh survival of the elitist, right? Being able to have the privilege to, to be able to have a meal. And, and, you know, it is a basic living need and it should not be a privilege to have food at a table. Yeah, I mean, I think that although there is definite sort of concern, real concern that we're facing a potential global food shortage if we're not already, that um, in this country, it's never been a question of do we have enough food to feed everyone? It's about access to those resources and, and can people access food? Um, but the fact even that we're not worrying about the fact that there's a global food crisis in itself is sort of like, okay, well, we're seeing ourselves as at the top of the food chain and you know, we're not we're, we're only worried about ourselves. But again, like there's lots of food. There's enough food to feed people right now in this country. but but, you know, access to resources and opportunity is not evenly shared across the population. And so while hunger can affect everyone, it affects some people more so than others. And some people are really disproportionately food insecure, black and brown communities, people living in rural areas. Um, and that really comes down to um, an unequal access to opportunity and to resources and fundamentally to sort of power and to the decision makers. And I see that here. <laughs> 
Yeah. And before we go to you, Nicole, I'm glad you mentioned that Celia about our um, global food shortage, because as I was revisiting the hunger games, I was remembering that this, in the beginning of the story, Pan Am, this new nation is founded after a climate crisis. So that very much plays a role in this world that they construct and these citizens live in. But Nicole, what are your reactions? I mean, I, th I think one thing as we have learned about, you know, the historical context of all of this is exactly what everyone else has said, that it's, it isn't about a lack. It isn't about you know, true scarcity. We have all of the resources. It's how they are distributed. It's how people have access. And that just doesn't seem to have fundamentally changed over time. And before we move on, um, Celia, can you tell us a little bit about some of the current programs that are currently in place to, to assist people who are hungry, who need food, whether sure, it's well, nonprofit or... Yeah. SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which was formerly known as the Food Stamp Program. So that's the program that basically was put in place in response to um, the work uncovering sort of the deep starvation that was going on in, in the rural South in the 60s. Um, so that program is, is, is our backbone defense against hunger in this country. It's a proven and cost-effective way to get people who are dealing with chronic food insecurity and acute crisis um, to have them access to groceries. And it's built on sort of the commercial grocery store, you know, uh, infrastructure. So people simply get a card, they can go in and buy groceries like everyone else. And it's a program that's available to people with incomes above the poverty level, people who are working, seniors, people with disabilities, families with children. The vast majority of people are seniors or or children participating in the program. Um, but it is definitely kind of does the heavy lift when it comes to fighting hunger in this country. And then you have a, a whole suite of nutrition programs administered by USDA, children's nutrition programs, uh, senior nutrition programs, um, the WIC program, which is a public health nutrition program. Um, and they are more targeted in terms of who they serve and the kind of benefits they offer. But together, they make up the federal nutrition safety net. And that's really where um, I think we um, have the most power as a nation, um, because we're coming together with our collective resources to fight a, a, a problem that affects all of us. And then you have the Charitable Food Assistance Network um, and the 21 food banks in our network in Texas. Um, and really, we're sort of there to, I think, fill in the, the gaps um, and to make sure that um, people who either can't access, aren't eligible for SNAP and other programs, or their SNAP benefits have run out, um, or maybe they're just in a really immediate crisis um, and just need a, a, a box of food to get through the month, and then everything's going to be okay. So we really see people, you know, with the you know whose experiences are diverse as as the term food insecurity is, um, but but food banks and charitable food assistance. I think what's important to point out is that you know we were never built or designed to be the response to hunger, um, and you know we'll never be able to um, do what the SNAP program and other programs can do. And that's not to say we don't play a really critical role in you know helping people and keeping hunger at bay and in creating resilience in our communities. And I think you clearly saw that during the pandemic, you know, in, in sometimes food banks are the, they can get there quicker, they're more nimble, they're, they shift, they can pivot on a dime, which, which big government programs generally can't. So I don't mean to downplay the importance of the role that food banks play, but I think in terms of understanding the solutions to hunger, it, it's a, we're part of a bigger anti-hunger ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And Lawson, were you aware of programs like this when, when you were needing extra assistance? So I, my, my mom got WIC whenever she had me and my sister, um, we're five years apart, right? So I, I don't remember having, I remember her telling me that we were on food stamps when I was a kid, but I remember going to the grocery store with, with uh, food, food stamps then, SNAP benefits now, uh, when my sister was born. Um, and also doing the WIC program. When uh, I had my son, I was on the WIC program and uh, was able to, to get his formula uh, through the WIC program, which um, 
I, I, I agree. I, I agree with what Celia said. I think that it's understanding what the programs are that are currently out there today and also understanding where the systems that we have in place with these programs, how they're broken, we need to kind of look, reassess them and see how we can make sure that they are uh, healthy systems to be able to uh, adequately address the need so that way the the burden isn't always on the shoulders of the nonprofit organizations like the food pantries and, and the and uh, uh, food banks like feeding Texas and all the uh, organizations that they come under and uh, in my personal experience with with having to do it I I've suffered uh, greatly from postpartum depression and it was a struggle that I had I had to endure and um, the to the the hurdles that you have to get through in order to get to some of these programs, they can be a little exploiting and a little violating when you're already in a vulnerable state. And they may not cover everything. Like, like we mentioned earlier, it's like you still may need to go to a food bank in order to get you through because the SNAP benefits only gave you an allotment of, of funding and you're limited on what that can purchase. With WIC, it was the same thing. I remember getting a list of foods that were covered and going to our HEB and HEB was amazing. They would put like little like uh, WIC approved little stickers uh, on the uh, some of the produce and, and, and grains that they would give. And I'd say, okay, I know I can get this. Um, but it, it's really understanding the, the systems that are there today. How can we ensure that they, again, they're, they're meeting the need and they, they are understanding they're coming with a place of empathy. We go back to empathy, right? Because it, it was a lot more empathetic for me to go to a church to get a box of unperish, non-perishable food from the food bank who I felt gave, continued to allow me to have some dignity when I went there versus going to um, trying to get SNAP benefits and having to go through that process, which takes so long and it takes a lot of time. And I don't, I didn't necessarily have the time in the middle of my day to go and wait in a waiting room and have to do all the paperwork and have to then give blood work and have to do this and have to do a background. Like it was just like one form or one screen after another. I didn't have that time because time meant that I was losing out on an opportunity to make money. And if I wasn't there, somebody else was taking the tips and I needed to get the tips in order to get out of my car. So it was this vicious cycle of just um, not feeling like it was a uh, there was an equity of access and, a, and, a, and an adjustment of flexibility for the folks that need it. I mean, the folks that need it, again, they may not have an eight to five Monday through Friday job. They may need to be able to, you know, go after work, but that means that they're, if they have to go in the middle of the day, they're losing out on funding. They may have kids. That means having to, to take their kids with them or pull them out of school so they can get them there. It's, it's, it's really understanding that there's a lived experience and though there's may not be a cookie cutter, uh, uh, family or person to, to poverty, what are the, the common denominators or what are the common variables of what this looks like? And how are we ensuring that we, we are responding to the folks that need the, the, the services to ensure that they're getting the services? And it was, there was a very big disconnect of being able to, to feel like there was a, a, a door-to-door uh, opportunity there. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, and Nicole, you know, we've been learning, so we're hearing where we are now as far as what benefits are available, but we've been learning about what benefits were previously available to Americans who needed assistance. Could you, so could you just touch on a little bit the surplus commodities and like where we started to where we are now? Yes. So we come back to Roosevelt and as part of the new deal, he, or was part of creating the surplus commodities program, which was really designed to kind of be a bridge between surplus commodities that were um, in sort of the economic system and also trying to bridge the gap to folks who were experiencing hunger. And so what that meant was that sort of the, the leftovers, the extras were then what was available to folks who were in need. Um, but that didn't necessarily mean that those foods were nutritionally rich. It was really meant as more of a, a stopgap to help farmers and, and, to, and to prop up the market um, and less about feeding hungry people. Um, we move into the 60s and as we've been discussing, right, that is the, the big rise of what we think of as the food stamp program. And it was because of the the sudden exposing of, of hunger in America. And, but obviously some of the issues then were that food stamps had to be purchased. So if you were a family who had no resources at all, 
then you couldn't even afford to purchase food stamps. So there was a gap in terms of then who even was eligible to take part in the program. And you can already imagine that the most vulnerable couldn't purchase food stamps, so then had no access um, to food that was especially prevalent in the South. Um, and then, I mean, I would say the other thing that I, I want to point out is, you know, the, this general pattern that when we're in these big times of kind of economic upheaval, that's when this rediscovery happens, we create programs to address the needs that we see. And then inevitably, there seems to be budget cutbacks. And so it's just this kind of expansion and shrinking, expansion and shrinking over time. And those are the patterns that keep playing out. But we, again, never see the problem completely disappear. Thank you, Nicole. Okay, we're going to move on. I mean, our, our panel is titled, Who is Winning um, in Our Broken System? So we're really interested in the idea of, and I almost hate to think of it as winners and losers because, you know, Lawson, we had our interview with you for the podcast. You shared with us that the system isn't necessarily broken. It's, it's working as it's designed, but we would say, well, we don't like the system how it is. Um, so I'm going to play us a clip from the 1968 documentary hunger in America. This was another piece of media that really captured the public's attention. It was shocking at the time. And if you watch it, you will you will probably agree. It's very raw. It does not shy away from the truth. It shows images of babies like literally dying of starvation, children and families living in horrible conditions. And this really woke up the public to the fact that we do have people here in America who are starving, where at the time it was this idea of like, that's somewhere else. This isn't here in this country. So in this clip, we're going to listen to an elected official um, discussing his thoughts about the issue. So let's check it out. San Antonio has four county commissioners, and their opinions vary. A.J. Plough is the senior commissioner. He has served five successive terms for the last 18 years. David Culhane asked Commissioner Plough about the children in San Antonio who are not getting enough food. Uh, well, why are they not getting enough food? Because the father won't work. And I mean won't work. If they won't work, do you expect the taxpayer to raise all the kids? Because the daddies won't work? First, let's do something with the daddies. And then, yes, take care of the kids. I wonder whether these children who are not getting a proper diet are going to be able to learn properly in school. Well, what do you mean learn properly in school? Uh, do you really need school? to a, other than say an eighth grade education that's where another thing people keep talking about this education college education it's not necessary and what do you do about the children who are not getting enough to eat well i don't know about that because that's really uh, the problem of the father now what to do about the man i don't know but you'll always have that condition because if you don't have that condition, then you will never have Indians and chiefs. And you've got to have Indians and chiefs. Not sure I understand what you mean. You mean that you'll always have hunger? It, not necessarily. Yes, you'll always have it because some men just ain't worth a dime. And you'll always have hunger, yes. Okay, Celia, I want to start with you. And you kind of already answered this question, but will we always have hunger or is there enough to go around? You know, Hunger is not an individual problem. It's not a result of individual failing, you know, failure to go to school, failure to keep an intact family, um, failure to keep a husband. Or, you know, it is not. It is a structural problem. It has structural causes, systemic causes. And so when you talk about who the winners and the losers are, it's the people who benefit from the way the system is set up. And the people who don't benefit from the way the system is set up are the people who are gonna go hungry. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the challenges to sort of, again, long-term solutions to hunger is that we do, if we do approach it as individual individualistically versus like, okay, well, what if we started with the idea that food is a human right? and built an entire system around making sure that everybody has access to food, regardless of whether they're in a two-parent family or have uh, you know, a bachelor's degree. Um, I think that really that is, we have to really shift our mindset about um, 
you know, and move from this measure of sort of deprivation to a measure of, you know, abundance for all. Yeah. And a reason we selected this clip is even though it's from 55 years ago, we still hear this rhetoric today from our politicians that uh, it's an individual problem. And if you can't solve it, that's on you instead of reframing it as a communal problem that we need to work on together to solve because it is systemic. Um, so Lawson, this interview takes place in San Antonio, your hometown. What are your reactions to this clip? I'm not surprised given the time period. I mean, we still see a lot of this rhetoric that was around from uh, Holt, which was the homeowners loan corporation. That was the ones that established redlining and San Antonio is still having experiencing the ripple effects of, of redlining and the historic gentrification or marginalization and, and segregation of these of these communities and what gentrification can do to these communities now um, in 2023. And some of the, the rhetoric that was in there was that, you know, areas on the east west side of San Antonio were poor investments because they were saturated with Mexicans and Negroes. This is coming from the the, the report and that, you know, they were uh, uneducated unsophisticated, just basically considering uh, human beings as wild animals. And so seeing that somebody's saying, well, it's because the, the father doesn't work. This is a narrative that is so saturated the history of San Antonio. And I get fired up about it because I'm a Latina. So like, I, I think of myself and I understand because I've I've, I've been in situations where they start talking to me slowly because they think I only speak Spanish or I get praised and thinking that I'm the first one to go to college when I actually come from three, three generations of, of collegiate graduates. And I'm very proud of that. But that was something that was, that was very difficult for my grandfather to do. And this idea that, you know, you have to, it, it happens to certain people, but not to others. I mean, it, it, there is definitely an imbalance of impact in, in, in black and brown and communities, indigenous communities as well of, of, of how we think that they are the ones dealing with it. And again, it goes back to the pick yourself up by the bootstraps ideology that we think that, you know, oh, well, you know, just pick yourself up by the bootstraps and you'll be fine. It, it goes back to what if they don't have the boots? What if they can't afford the shoes to put on their feet in order to get out of that situation? And just because you had a privilege of being uh, either inheriting the shoes, uh, being able to afford the shoes on your own, whatever the quote unquote American dream was for you, that wasn't necessarily everybody's narrative. And we didn't give a lifeline of defense for everybody else like we did some folks in, in 1968 and even now. And mm -hmm. I just want to say, like, there should be, we should not be horrified by this video. It, the language has changed over time and how we talk about people who are hungry and the mm -hmm. reasons people are hungry. But, but the message is still the same, which is that it's an individual failing. And I think we see that reflected in policy. So, for example, in SNAP, the big debate you know, in the farm bill this year, which authorizes SNAP is, do we need stricter work requirements? So again, that implies that if people need help affording food, um, that it's because they're not working hard enough. And so let's, let's create a, a punitive approach. Um, you know, I think when welfare reform happened in the early 90s, and we went from, the, you know, the AFDC program to the TANF block grant. One of the core purposes of that block grant was to support the formation of two parent families. So again, it's not the rhetoric has changed, but the messages are the same. And again, I think we're going to be in this trapped in this cycle of waiting till a disaster hits and there's public will to really fundamentally find solutions to hunger until we really get sort of breakthrough, disrupt that, that rhetoric. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning I mean, that, Celia. About it, I mean, if we can be real for a second and going back to my experience with, uh, with WIC, right. Which is stands for women, infant children. And it was program, right. I, uh, I could not breastfeed. My body said, no, we're not doing it, but I had to prove through three different visits that I could not breastfeed, which meant that I had to be able to provide my child with formula of some sort in the interim gap before they finally approved them, approved my child for getting formula. On top of that, I then had to go to his pediatrician, which I was on Medicaid and we can even talk about how in a healthcare system, how you get snubbed and you get kind of looked at and, and you're given a different type of treatment than you are if you have a regular insurance, right? Um, I had to get a form from them in order to get the special formula. But it was, it was this idea that 
if I wasn't breastfeeding, it was because I had it, it was, it was my choice not to do it versus my body's. And I had to show them that it was, it was just not happening. And so it, 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 to the point of like, you know, it's this, it's the individual's problem or it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a choice. It's not a choice. It's, it's the cards that we were dealt and we're not getting any support to be given any more cards. We're not given a full deck to begin with. And, and in that case, it's putting economics before people because Absolutely. the reason they wanted Lawson to breastfeed was because it would be that she'd be a cheaper wet client then because they wouldn't have to provide formula. So, yep. you know, and there's right. there's double standards here everywhere. I think it, it really struck me during the pandemic when there was debate over whether we could require people to get vaccinated, you know, that in the welfare program, if you want to get cash assistance to support you and your kids, you actually are required to vaccinate your kids or you can't get assistance. You're sanctioned if you miss an appointment or you miss a vaccine. So if you're poor, if you're a poor single mother, you know, you have to get vaccinated to get help, but we can't, we won't, we won't put that requirement on the general population during a global health pandemic. So just really big double standards across the board that I think um, really just show what's at the root of the problem here, which is I think a lot of uh, prejudice and racism and um, about who's hungry and why and who's poor and why. And, and um, you know, that in turn, I think really uh, makes the solutions ineffective. And Nicole, I'd like for you to have a chance to jump in on this. I mean, they've said it beautifully. I have really nothing more to add. It, it really, I'm glad that we chose this clip. I happen to know that we chose it very intentionally because it really says the quiet part out loud, which is this um, fundamental belief that there are deserving and undeserving poor. And how you fit into those categories is the kinds of ideas that this man you know, shared in this clip. And it still persists today, whether it is something that is said again out loud or is sort of behind people's hands and the ways that they respond to these programs when they come up for debate. But it's it's still persistent and it's important to talk about openly. Mm -hmm. And as we're coming to the end here, um, our goal of this panel is to bring awareness to this issue because we've, I've personally learned, I've had my own discovery of hunger doing this research. So hopefully this will help get everyone in, in listening to this podcast, thinking about that. Um, but if you could, if panelists, if you could say there was one thing we could take away to help work towards eliminating hunger, what would that be? And it's kind of a funny question because I think we're all recognizing this as a systemic issue, but, um, but there still is a, a, a role that we can all play to help move towards a more uh, equitable world. So what would you, what would you suggest that we take away with us? Well, hopefully people will leave with a better understanding of the problem. Hopefully we haven't overwhelmed people into thinking that there isn't a solution or that individuals don't have a role to play in that solution, because I do think that it it will take significant public pressure to generate the kind of political will we need to really kind of tackle the, the long-term solutions that we've been talking about. But I think in the short term, it's being engaged in the democratic process, uh, really what y'all's podcast is is all about, you know, is is encouraging people to be informed and and reminding them that, you know, we live in a participatory democracy and that democracy works best when people do participate. So, you know, go out and vote, go to city council meetings, um, follow what's going on at the legislative session, um, get connected to your local food bank, whether it's volunteering or donating, um, you know, we encourage people to stay connected to the stuff we're working on at the Capitol um, and to raise their voices um, when there are opportunities to pass better policy to fight hunger. Uh, so that would be that would be my hope for people leaving the session or listening to this podcast. Thank you. Yes, and I just want to double down on what what Celia has said. And, and even be you know more specific, but subscribe to to Feeding Texas so that you get updates. Um, diversify, diversify your social media feeds so that you have 
things more visible to you. I know that's something that's been really important to me is to make that effort so that this doesn't remain invisible. Um, you know, find a mutual aid organization within your community that you can follow who will keep you informed of what's happening locally. But I think that is it, right? Staying aware and then pushing in the ways that we are each able to push. And Lawson? I think for me, it's just advocating and pr and pressing for our, you know, our, our, our representatives to look at these systems, not as a checkbox, move on uh, type of program, but as, as a living system, as a living document that should be reevaluated, reassessed uh, periodically to ensure that it is still addressing the needs of today, not when it was initially adopted. And I think that that's one of the biggest gaps that I see in some of these programs that it may have been what was the, what was the response to an immediate need 50 years ago, but is it still relevant and, and sufficient for what we have today? And I think for folks out there that may be like, what do I do with my hands right now? Uh, lead with empathy, whatever you do. Um, I think it's, uh, it's incredibly important for all of us to be patient and understanding in, in, in folks' situations and just and being kind and considerate. And, and I do, I, I definitely encourage folks to, to try to uh, take a moment to to do a food distribution in, in your community and put a face to a cause and know that these are your neighbors that are in need or in this line and, and really, really humanize this, uh, this, this topic of discussion. I think that's very important. Yeah, thank you. Well, and thank you everyone for listening. I know I've been learning so much about this topic and I'm just so grateful that we have had the opportunity to dig in and that South by Southwest is going to give us a spotlight to talk about this on a bigger stage, because as we know, it's, it's a persistent problem. And it seems like when it gets that attention and there's these lightning bolt moments, we have a real opportunity for uh, collective policy change. So we're hopeful that that'll happen soon because it's not going away. Um, with the current system that we have in place. So thank you again for listening and let us know what you think of this episode. Thank you everybody for joining me, Nicole Abshire and my co-host Claire Campos O'Neill on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics and we hope that you'll do more with us. Check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com where you'll find links to all of our social media and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks everybody and have a good one.